0: Welcome to Health and Veritas, I'm Harlan Krumholz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Mike Ivey from Yale New Haven Health System, Deputy Chief Medical Officer. And before we check in on current health news, I wanna just once again, wish Harlan a happy birthday for yesterday. And I want to wish Miranda a happy birthday today. Miranda is our producer. We never get to let her speak. So I just want to wish you a happy birthday. Harlan gets to say it every week, but I just want to say how thankful I am for you and for Jenny and obviously to work with Harlan. So well, it's I a try joy, to say thank happy you birthday many times to her so that she'll be kind to me on the editing. You know, I want to get a little more. <laughs> yes. Well, I hope you get to do something fun today, Miranda. So, Harlan, we'd like to check in on health news at this point. What's got your attention?
1: Yeah, sure, Howie. And uh, thanks for the good wishes. And you know, I've actually, I decided to spend my birthday, uh, my wife and I came down and spend it with my mother, the person who's known me the longest in the world. And uh, actually,
0: yeah. being,
1: in, being in Florida, visiting her for a couple of days, just reminded me about how health information gets propagated. She, she brings to me a Harvard Health letter that warns people about excessive napping and sleepiness. Now, the, the intent is good. It's trying to tell people to be mindful that if they're sleeping a lot, maybe they might ask their doctor about it. Well, my mother comes to me and says, like, I've read this and I'm afraid to take naps now because this <laughs> is suggesting it causes strokes. I mean, so it just emphasizes to me how important it is that we're really clear in our messaging about health. And even when we're well-intentioned, it can be understood in ways that are not intended and cause cause harm. I mean, it was great for me to be able to reassure her, no, if you want to take a nap, you can take a nap. It's okay. But, but, you know, even like the Harvard health letter, she was, you know, sort of not understanding exactly what it meant. And, uh, it just, it it re it emphasized to me. And and the other thing I wanted to say today, you and I've been talked about this a little bit is there, we had another article that came out. So the importance of actually doing the experiments and getting the information, a lot of people have heard about intermittent fasting, That is this time restricted eating. It's where you're basically told, you know, if you leave a certain amount of time where there's no food, that that has benefits to you above and beyond the fact that it might affect your caloric intake. And that by having periods of mini starvation essentially every day, it sort of puts the body into a mode where it's uh, gonna drive towards getting rid of bad things and and emphasizing good things and help you live longer. And this has been a very big topic of, uh, of attention. There was an article that came out in one of the JAMA journals, JAMA Network Open, that asked, does this time-restricted eating help people who have this what's called fatty liver disease? So so the people sometimes who are drinking a lot of alcohol who can injure their livers. But sometimes people, especially those who have obesity, can have fatty deposits occur within the liver, and those can cause metabolic problems for them. And one of the questions was, would this uh, time-restricted eating, essentially intermittent fasting, help these people above and beyond calorie restrictions. So they took two groups with about, and, and they made sure that they were taking about the same number of calories. Lo and behold, no benefit, no benefit to this intermittent fasting. And this comes on top of an article that came out last year in JAM Internal Medicine, another highly regarded journal that asked him, what's the effect of time-restricted eating on weight loss and metabolic health in people who are overweight and, and people with obesity? And they randomized in that trial, a bunch of people to having that period of fasting versus not. And lo and behold, at the end of that study, it didn't confer any benefit, either on weight loss or cardiometabolic, like, you know, the sort of blood tests that we do, they talk about, you know, whether or not there's sort of heart health. Anyway, the end of this, and I just wanted to share this with folks because they may have heard a lot about this intermittent fasting. The rigorous studies that are doing are kind of accumulating to suggest it seems to be about the calories, folks. It's not about the timing. And there's lots of theories about timing and circadian rhythms and this and that. Right. When it comes to actually testing it in these experiments, so far, doesn't seem to be holding up. So
0: uh, anyway, I thought that was kind of it, interesting. It really is incredible. Like I mean, this is not something that is just a few few people are doing this. You, I've talked to any number of people who have either tried it for short periods of time, or I, I know people that continue to do it right now after several years. Okay, I'll tell you, I tried it, I tried it, Howie. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I can't do it, I can't do it. How long did you try
1: it for? I think I tried it for a couple months, uh, you know, and I just wondered if it would make me feel better, if it would, if it would help me yeah. a couple pounds yeah, I didn't find any benefit, but
0: you know, I didn't know whether that was just me or, you know, but yeah. It's fascinating though, how fast people are willing to try something without knowing how it's going to affect them. And quite frankly, it could be harmful. Like we don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, these studies, interestingly enough, uh, didn't, hasn't panned out. There still needs to be more studies. So this isn't definitive yet. Just saying accumulating evidence isn't supporting. So let's get to Mike.
0: We're so lucky to have him as a guest today. Dr. Michael Ivey is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Yale New Haven Health. He began his medical career in the Navy, training in surgery at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, and spent nine years in active duty, including deployments to the Adriatic Sea in South Korea. He then completed a fellowship at Yale New Haven Health System in surgical critical care, and became Chief of Trauma, Burns, and Surgical Critical Care at the Bridgeport Hospital. At Bridgeport, he became vice president for performance and risk management in 2007, chief medical officer in 2012, and then served as interim president at the Bridgeport Hospital in 2018, prior to his current system-wide role. As if that's not enough, he's also the author or co-author of dozens of scholarly papers, including some very highly cited ones, contributing to our understanding of how to manage trauma and burn patients. Dr. Ivey received his bachelor's degree from Washington University in St. Louis and his medical degree from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. So first, welcome to the Health Veritas podcast. You are a remarkable person and a good friend. I can go on and on about why we're so happy and lucky to have you here But you've also been deeply committed to wellness and well being for the entire staff of our system, and particularly our providers, and this at a time when national measures of well being among physicians are plumbing new lows, but you have been sharing your own deeply touching personal story from 2003 with audiences near and far so. Can you start off and take us back to that time when you were top of your field, active clinically, chief of trauma, burns, and surgical critical care at Bridgeport, and the associate program director for the Yale General Surgery Residency?
2: Yeah. So first, thanks, Howie and Harlan. It's an honor to be on the on the on the program. So I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah. So if you go back to two thousand three. You know, really this story kind of starts in 2002 when I became the associate program director, the Yale surgery program had gotten on the uh, wrong side of the changes, the revolutionary changes that were going on in GME at the time. And so it took, you know, a lot of extra work to kind of um, get back on the right side of, of the changes, you know, where at, this, and at the same time, I was a very busy clinician.
0: And for so, our audience, GME graduate uh, medical education—that's our residency programs, right?
2: Correct. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And there was major changes going on back then, and um, so so by the summer of two thousand two, fall of two thousand two, I was pretty pretty burned out. And then um, and then and then in the summer, I became the the chief of uh, uh, trauma at Bridgeport, and you know it, it was just more work. And the guy who had been the chief became the chair. And so then there was even more clinical responsibility that, you know, we had to carry. Although, I mean, Nabil did a great job trying to um, help us. and But, you know, he wasn't able to carry the kind of the same clinical load he'd been carrying, you know, in June or July. And so um, I think that we got pretty um, pretty worn out. And you got to remember, like, we we're this was old school. We were still doing, you know, 36 hours of trauma call. Um, and you're a as a,
0: and you're a former military guy. I mean, as much as you might have been a physician in the military, you've you'd been on the ground, seen catastrophes. Like you've sort yeah. of lived through a pretty hard life. This wasn't totally outside of the realm for what you'd done before,
2: right? No, I no, that's certainly true. I mean, yeah, I mean the deployment deploying is hard, and 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 I'd been through yeah a number of kind of trying experiences, but um, but this just didn't let up, you know. And so then. I think by the you know beginning of 2003 you know we'd been telling ourselves we were burned out because that was a phrase being used in the trauma world even in the early 2000s um probably because we were working you know ridiculous hours and yeah i just you know how you know you know you feel you constantly feel like you're letting people the people that you care about the most down you know you're not you're not there for the little league game you're not there for the school concert you're not there for the ballet recital, you're not there for, you know, anything at home. You're missing dinner a lot. Um, you're working a lot of weekends and uh and holidays and and uh nights and uh and then you know and then at work, you know, if you do want to get home, you're like, hey Phil, can you do this gallbladder for me? I I really I need to be home for this, this parent teacher conference. I got I got to get out of here. And so every it just seemed like every day, month after month after month, you know know, when i hear it
1: i sometimes think that that this system has historically exploited people in that way you know because the people drawn to medicine are are people who who want to give are empathic or want to help out actually always want to pull their load and 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 i've often felt like you can i mean those of us in academia let's just take the academic place we're sort of on a fixed salary i mean there may be bonus parts to it but it's, it's most yeah fixed. I mean, it's sort of like it, the the idea is we can just keep adding to that like we don't have to hire more like people will just continue to take it and yeah. and we give lip service to the idea of wellness but but our you know we don't always walk the walk with regard to that and it's hard we talk about safe spaces but it's really hard for someone not to feel like I may be, you know, letting other people down, or yeah. especially junior people sacrificing my career, yeah. if I if I raise this because if I show any weakness at all, people are going to perceive me as not someone they can depend on. And navigating this, where we can help people both be the heroes they want to be, but recognize mm-hmm. part of it is being true to yourself and what you need after yeah. you've been through all of this. Yeah. Where do you land about trying to find that balance so you can give that messaging and and, and do it in a way that that support? Because I will say even to today, even through covid, right. I see people coming into work sick.
2: Yeah, and, and like, <laughs> do. they
1: don't, they don't want to call somebody and say, I need coverage like that. Those yeah. words are so hard for a doctor to say, uh, look, I'm, I'm I've got a cough I, and I've seen it like you yeah. think through covid just for protection of patients, we'd be saying do not come in if you are sick, but still not because they don't care about the patients, but because it's so ingrained in us not to raise our hands and say, you know, I should be home today. And yeah. well, I, you know, you're yeah. in a position of leadership. How you navigate that? because it, it's just hard because it's so intrinsic to the way the profession is built still to today.
2: Yeah, I, I, so I, I think I think that's that's part of the challenge, right, Arlen? It's like it is real. It's structurally part of what we do every day. And and again, I think an important part of what you just said is like what happens is you blame yourself. After a while, like you, I'm not I'm not blaming the hospital for not hiring a couple other trauma surgeons. I'm blaming myself for not being there for my family and my colleagues. That if really you you put it on yourself. I got to be able to step up. I got to do this and that. That is not a healthy approach to this. I will say I think that the younger generation has a somewhat better perspective on this than we do.
1: But but the, but the system, just to follow up one quick yeah. thing, is the system is not built for this flex. So, yeah. you know, in a way like, right. I asked this question when they were hiring the last chief cardiology, I just said, I'm just curious, when you get someone to come in here, how many cardiologists do you think you need to care for people with cardiac disease in, in, in our catchment area? Like, what is the reasonable expectation of a workload and how many people do you need and, and what kinds of people, nurse, practitioner, everything? Like who's done the simulation? Like, how does it look? But but in the end, like, actually, no one's done that simulation. And, and as the demand goes up, and we've got, by the way, like a three to six month wait list for cardiology appointments right. in right. Yale medicine. So right. everybody feels this pressure that right. there are people we're letting down. I mean, there's letting down your family. There's letting down yourself. But there's also letting down the people who are in queue who are hoping to be able to see somebody. And it takes a total restructuring of of our world in a way to be able to start thinking in in like how many hours is reasonable to ask somebody professionally to put in. And of course, on the academic side, the expectation I have to sit down with trainees and say, if you do X, it's enough this year because no one tells them what enough is because it's an infinite amount. It and is another side of burnout right on the academic yeah. side, which is you can't ever do enough. And right. I, I try to I see part of my job is to say, if you do two papers this year, that's enough. You know, so let's figure out what the two most important papers are and do it. Don't feel like if I did two great papers, I just wish I'd done four. I wish I'd done a, you know, it kills me when I hear people. And I will say this in women. It manifests even more deeply, yeah. even more deeply. And I, I hate to make gender yeah. issues here, but it is. This sometimes in one of our jobs is going to be to tell people what's enough out of you as a professional.
2: Yeah. So 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 I, so I have a couple of comments. One is I, I think part of the way out of this is just what you're doing, which is mentoring the people that that are working, you know, for you and with you to say, look, you need to set limits. Like two papers is enough. It's enough. Don't get too out of balance. I think I think that's that's an important part
0: what turns it around for you? Like, when do you start to get involved in self-care and how does that translate into the work you do now? So, you know, Howie,
2: I mean, like, like a lot of people, like I had to bottom out, right. I mean, I mean, I had a plan on how to, um, you know, end my life and, um, you know, I was struggling with it every day. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, I had, I had three young kids at the time and I was not going to leave them, but that didn't mean I didn't struggle every day. But despite that, I did not. I mean, I know this sounds crazy. I I did not think of myself as depressed and suicidal. I really thought I was burned out and struggling. But and I think that's just because the stigma is so great. And, and so then one day I'm driving into work. We, we used to round at the CQ at the VA as well.
0: When you say rounding, just for our listeners, you're talking about visiting each of the patients, discussing their cases with your team.
2: And, and I remember a lecture from med school about, well, if people have a plan on how to commit so then like they need to be seen urgently. And that is the first time I'm like, oh, oh, it, I just like, it was, I mean, it was really one of those. You know, uh, um,
1: I mean, you 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 were driving in and you recognized I actually have a plan to end my life, and that's when you like the light went off and said, "Oh, oh my goodness, maybe this is a that problem."
2: That's that's, that's exactly right, right. That's exactly what happened. I'm like, "Oh, wow!" And i on "What am I going to do now?" And so, so I went in and you know, and of course, like everybody else, I went in and rounded, and then I called bonnie <laughs>
1: Right. Oh that <laughs> is so that is just such an emblematic thing. Like, so what did you do next? I went in and rounded
2: rounded yeah, exactly
1: because yeah. you had to because yeah because I,
2: I had to do it right and and, right. I, and I and then I called Ronnie Rosenthal who is the chair of surgery at the, we VA all know. At the time. Yep. she's terrific. great yep. right terrific. Yeah. and I said hey Ronnie I'm I'm struggling do you mind if I come up and talk to you for a while and so I went up and talked to Ronnie and um you know I just broke down oh you goodness. know Ronnie's a very empathetic person um oh. and um you know, I hadn't talked to anybody at that point about this. And, um, well, thank goodness you did. I mean, yeah, no, no, I think that's right. Because I think that was reaching out to her. That was, I mean, life-saving, um, certainly life-changing for me. And, um, so then I, I took a couple weeks off and started therapy and, you know, gradually got to the point where I saw things differently. So we, you know, we stopped doing elective surgery. We stopped. That freed up a lot of time. So then we then we actually started going home the morning after call rather than staying because, because the residents were going home in the first thing in the morning. You know, and we were staying all day. So, be, I mean, there's a big difference when you get home at 10 a.m. and, and 6 p.m. And so uh,
1: one quick thing is this doesn't yeah. derail your, you, you go through this thing, amazing. Yeah. It doesn't really derail your career. Your career continues to, Klein, most people are concerned it's going to derail. Do you have a lessons for people who, who, you know, look at you and try to say, what should I take from this?
2: Well, I, I do think it changed the arc of my career a little bit, right? I mean, I had a success. I mean, I, again, I had no complaints about my career. But, I, you know, I didn't become a chair anywhere. I really shifted away um, from some of, the, um, some of the clinical stuff eventually, um, several five years later or something. I so it was a while down the road. I think there are a few things that I that I tell people. One is um, you know, a lot of times there's stuff out going on outside of work. One is um you may have health problems. And and it may be because of those health problems. So I had this uveitis problem that I was having. And it turned out that sleep deprivation was kind of making it worse. Yeah. It wasn't until I was not taking a lot of call that I realized it. So like I was like, I gotta stop taking a call. So that that was one big shift. I, so you gotta take care of your health. To um if you have kids at home or who are struggling with some some kind of chronic condition, um again, that's another reason for you to stop and go like your your career may need to change if if you want to be able to um be there for your family who needs you. Um and so I, you know, I, I think um I mean uh, those are a couple of the you know kind of big pieces of advice I give. Um <laughs>
0: Can I ask yeah. you, your, you know, your current role does include well-being and wellness, yep. um, but I'm, you know, totally impressed and sort of emboldened almost about like, you know, I've had my own mental health issues in my life. I don't really talk about them enough. I've talked about them in small groups, but you have actively now gone out and yeah. told this story to larger and larger groups near and far. And I think it's incredibly important. We need to sort of destigmatize mental health issues globally, but we certainly need within our profession as well. Was there a moment that triggered this that said, you know, I just got to do this. It's the right thing to do. What What caused you to start talking about this?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, when I first stepped into this role, one of my daughters was um, a Peds resident out at, at St. Louis Children's Hospital and tried to see if WashU has any programs or offerings we don't have. And they don't or they right. didn't. You know, I mean, you yeah. know, there's only so many cards in the deck. We all have the same cards. However, Julie had a great insight. And she says, you know, dad, when people come and they say, look, if you're struggling, call this person. If you're struggling, email this person. If you're struggling, go to this office. And she said, they never say, and when I struggle, this is what I did.
0: Right.
2: And she said, if you want to decrease the stigma, people got to get out there and they got to say, this is what I did. And, uh, you know, I mean, I I mean, my kids know I've been depressed. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I mean, they were not that young um, at the time.
1: What a lot of wisdom. What a lot of wisdom she has.
2: Right? Yeah. That was a lot. That was a lot of insight. So that's kind of what got me to doing this, Howie. I mean,
1: I've almost never seen it, Mike. I mean, you know, just what you said, people tell people what to do. But to make yourself vulnerable and to be so authentic about what your experience has been. It is just one of the most breathtaking and remarkable things. And and I do think it does unlock for a lot of people the thought that I can actually talk to someone.
2: Yeah. No, thanks, Harlan. Yeah, I think I was literally on the phone earlier today with the American Hospital Association talking about trying to do this, you know, uh, for them. And sec- again, one of the goals, one of the stated goals of the AHA is kind of decrease the stigma. Um, associated with you know ag- acknowledging that you have struggles and and that you need to get help and um, you know
1: do I, I you see this as connected to the larger issue people are talking about of burnout or is this more a, a more profound and extreme situation where people are maybe a combination of the external stressors but internal stressors too I mean I'm just trying to separate because yeah. everyone we, we do know that thirty to forty percent. Maybe more of doctors will report burnout. You know the numbers better than I do. But is this part of that or is this a a subset of that?
2: I think this is a subset of it. You know, in the talk, part of what I say is like, look, you you don't have to be, you have to wait till you're suicidal to kind of ask for help. Right, right. You know, it's okay to reach out for help if if you feel like you're burned out, you know? And so I think it is a subset of the overall work but, but I think it's a necessary change in the culture. Uh, I really do. I mean, I, and, and, and I think it's part of the culture that is changing. I mean, if you got on the floors, there was a time where people just acknowledged that they were, you know, on SSRI. So they'd started, you know, there was a lot, it's a lot more open than it was even just a few years ago.
0: Well, have you gotten responses from individuals after giving a talk like this? Oh, and Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, no, absolutely. Either, You know, I've had really hard. some of the, you know, after I gave the talk for the first time, I got I got an email from one of the surgery residents and it just like it almost brought tears to my eyes. Sure. Um, And so I've and people reach out to me, you know, periodically now after I give the talks, either some people reach out immediately. Other people reach out weeks or months later sometimes. And they they frequently have something else going on. You know, they have a you know, a, a kid who's sick or some, you know, parent who died, you know, those kinds of things. But um, yeah, uh, that's, that's part of the deal here.
0: And, and just briefly, since this is what you do right now, you know, what do you see as the strategies that we can take as a system, you know, in your organizational role to help our physician workforce cope better and, and hopefully have a more enjoyable life?
2: yeah. So, you know, again, I, I, you know, I buy into that Stanford model. I mean, again, they trademarked it. So, you know, somebody, I'm not the only person who buys into right. it. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I, I think we're all pretty resilient and there's not more, I and mean, there's more you can do to increase resilience. And we have programs trying to support that, but that's, a, that's not going to be, there's not going to be a lot of return there because people are pretty resilient to start with.
0: Can, can I stop you for one second and
2: just tell us yeah.
0: when people say the Stanford model, What do they mean by that? And why is it called the Stanford
2: model? Stanford medicine has a model where the, you know, the factors that kind of play into burnout and healthcare are related to the work, the culture and personal resilience. And so um, again, you know, I, I think the challenge is the programs on resilience are the easiest and, you know, and I encourage people to do it. I mean, you should try to take care of yourself, but again, I think that, People, by and large, who go into healthcare are pretty resilient, and so there's not a lot of return there. Two, I think we are changing the culture. We are, and that's this is part of that effort: making it okay to, you know, to ask for help; making it okay to call in sick, you know, when you need to. I mean, those kinds of things. Um, But, but the work is a lot. There's enormous productivity pressure on people. All across the board. Yeah, in every field. And and it's not just, I mean, you know, I think Epic and Cerner and those guys get a bad name, the electronic medical record, but, but it's more than that. You know, the, the documentation requirements, you know, for billing purposes and for malpractice, you know, purposes and for like, that's a lot, it takes, it's a lot for people to go out of their way to do all that extra time and documentation. And I think that that, um, and, you know, again, it's, and just all those concerns, it's the Sisyphean task. I mean, we feel like we're making progress and then the Cures Act rolls out and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, you're killing me. Um, and then we got to try to, you know, figure out how to make those changes. And,
0: and- just for our listeners, the Cures Act, uh, you're talking about reporting requirements or or what what specifically in the Cures
2: Act? Yeah, I think the reporting requirements um, because of COVID, everybody got onto portals, you know, so that they could ask their physicians questions. And once you start getting access to all the lab data immediately and all the all the radiology readings immediately, you don't necessarily know what they mean. It's just generated a lot more traffic. Yeah, Um, and so um, so I mean, again, it's a necessary step in the right direction, but we weren't we were in no way ready for that. I mean, if they had come at a different time, maybe, but right on, right in the middle of kind of, or not in the middle, maybe, but, you know, toward the later ends of this COVID pandemic, it, it hurt us a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, let me just say, you know, what a, what a pleasure it is to talk to you, Mike, and how m- sure. much of a difference you've made both locally to us, but I know also around the country. And, and, you know, this is an immense health contribution you've made. You've written papers, you've, you've treated patients but actually you're you're helping people in the profession so much and others beyond like you said all professions are affected by this so but ours I think in particular right now is in a very very difficult situation and your voice is just so important and needed so thank you thank you for joining us thank you for sharing with our listeners and uh, and and we look forward to having you back sometime in the future you know, to keep talking about this
2: okay thanks okay, a lot nice, Harlan. I really appreciate it yes thank you thanks Howie
1: well, that was a terrific interview, Howie. I'm just uh, every time I hear Mike Ivy, I'm just so impressed, and he's got such an important message. But but let's pivot to the next part of the podcast and get to what's on your mind this week.
0: Yeah. So today, you know, sometimes I have dour news, but today I bring you an incredibly hopeful breakthrough in science. Love that. that. Has it Love all. that. <laughs> I know we need good news. It's about health equity, precision medicine, genomics, and the hard work of so many scientists with a lot of potential to to make lives better and even save money. So here here it is. Black Americans are 13% of the U.S. population. They make up 32% of cases of end-stage renal failure. That makes them at least two and a half times as likely as non-Black Americans to have end-stage renal failure. There are many reasons for this, and we've sort of weighted our explanations towards social and structural determinants of health, like income, education, early management and access to hypertension and diabetes care, et cetera. And all of these things remain contributors, or at least we think so, but they aren't the whole story. In the last decade, we've discovered that individuals whose ancestry is in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly West Africa, and particularly even Nigeria as one region, have a substantially higher likelihood of having a specific genetic variant, which we call APOL1, G1, or G2, right? You may ask yourself why this gene is is so disproportionately affecting this population. Well, it turns out that this gene is actually protective against trypanosomiasis, which is also called sleeping sickness, a, a brutal disease that until very recently was responsible for tens of thousands of deaths and a lot of extra morbidity as well. So put a different way, that gene or those genes conferred a selective advantage in the past. It allowed people to have a more higher likelihood of surviving into their reproductive years. But it turns out that when you have two of these gene variants, you have a sharply higher risk of at least one and probably many more forms of kidney disease that ultimately lead to organ failure, renal failure. So, not a lot of a lot could be done over the last decade because modifying the gene is not really feasible, and there are other reasons why it's difficult. But then in last week's New England Journal of Medicine, investigators tested a small molecule drug, and, and I use that term to mean a chemical that you could basically take orally as opposed to having to be injected, and in something that ultimately could be inexpensive. And it had a dramatic impact on one of the intermediate steps leading to renal failure in these specific patients. So both in a mouse model and then in a small sample of humans, there was significant improvement in proteinuria, which is protein in your urine. And in this population, it was tested after they already had symptoms. There is much more to do to test this in a larger sample, in an asymptomatic population, in a randomized controlled trial, and to confirm that this will reduce the risk of renal failure, but the evidence is pretty compelling for this moment, and we need to look ahead to more. Renal failure is very costly. It's about $120 billion a year, I looked it up today. It shortens life expectancy substantially, It burdens an individual with either maintaining an organ transplant or receiving dialysis for the rest of their life. We also have an organ shortage in our country relative to demand. So while procuring organs from living and cadaveric donors remains a priority, it will never meet the current demand for transplants. So reducing the likelihood of renal failure through this or another pathway reduces demand for organs. It improves the lives of those who would have been affected. It saves money. It ultimately benefits all of us.
1: That's really interesting, Howie. I mean, there's lots of facets to this. One is that we're entering in this era where there may be like gene directed therapy. We have that in cancer. I mean, it's very common, obviously, but but there may be other diseases where we will be looking at people's genes and, and making determinations about what's the best way to treat them, even anticipating illness. And increasingly, I believe it. people are going to be sequenced. So you, it's going to be part of your database. It'll, it'll be something you carry and you'll know what it is. And as insights come out about how to leverage your data, whether it's telling you what you're at risk for, what you might respond to, that, that that's going to be common. So we'll only have to do it, you know, largely once. I mean, it may be, it happens a couple of times as, as sequencing gets better, more precise, more expanded. But in general, people will be able to leverage off of that information. It's interesting what you bring up about, Black Americans, it is important, and I know that, that you agree with this, that you know that the the understanding now is that race is not genetically bound. So Correct. it's right. a social construct, right. but it is Correct. still yep. true that there are some genes. We're all from Sub Saharan Africa, actually, in, in truth. That's but right. It's true that there are some groups where there are some mutations that tend to track to get Tay Saxon and, and Jews, for example. Correct. Right? You in know, in so,
0: Ashkenazi Jews.
1: So finding this. Right. Messing for the public is really also important so that people don't think that, you know, lar- largely there's overlap of all of our genome, you know. Uh, and so, Correct. you know, what's not overlapping is is not is relatively minor in comparison. But anyway, I don't know. You might have a comment or thought
0: about this, but I also just want to clarify that. No, I mean, it's fascinating. It, it You know, in my reading about this, uh, it was fascinating because they make the very clear point that obviously, The gene was acquired effectively after the migration began, and that's why this group has it, and and so many of the people that migrated out of sub-Saharan Africa, tens of thousands of years ago uh, don't have it. So it just shows you how dynamic we are and we are accumulating both bad and good genes over time. This one is protective against trypanosomiasis. And so it had an advantage for a long time. We can treat trypanosomiasis now. We can prevent it now. Now's the time we have to figure out how to get rid of the bad effects of this. And the first step will be proving that this is true. And the second step is, as you say, screening for it appropriately. But but importantly, we're not making any sort of point that,
1: that race is a genetic construct. It's just no, that there are no. some genes that do follow along in those, those
0: ways. And that, I think it's hard for people to appreciate the fact that like the biology of a black person and a white person is exactly the same, but we all, whether we're white, whether we're black, whether we're indigenous, uh, you know, uh, South American, uh, we have accumulated genes that accumulate regionally and aren't necessarily expressed yeah. globally. And and I do believe that the social determinant
1: effects tend to dwarf actually differences in biology in terms of generally health, health outcomes. But a topic for the future, and I'm sure we'll revisit this with a lot of lot of experts. But thanks for but sharing. At least that. it
0: gives us hope. It gives yeah, us hope.
1: Very interesting, very interesting paper. You've been listening
0: to Health and Veritas with Harlan Promotes and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's hmkyale, And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at Yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu EMBA. And I want to just point out, we have some exciting news from the School of Public Health coming up in just a few weeks, so stay tuned for that as well. Health and Veritas is produced
1: with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, who is amazing, to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, who is also amazing, and it's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Miranda.
0: Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon. Happy birthday again to Miranda.